This is Space Time, Series 26, Episode 65, for broadcast on the 31st of May, 2023. Coming up on Space Time, a polar cyclone found on Uranus, lightning's role in the creation of life, and SpaceX's latest space tourism flight to the International Space Station. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. Astronomers have discovered what appears to be a polar cyclone on the planet Uranus. The findings, reported in the journal Geophysical Research Letters, are based on new observations obtained thanks to the distant planet's orbital position relative to the Sun and the Earth. You see, Uranus orbits the Sun virtually on its side. Its spin axis is pretty much always pointing to the same place in space, regardless of its orbital position around the Sun. The Earth does the same thing with its spin axis, virtually always points towards the same place in space, and that's what gives us our seasons. But while Earth takes just 365 and a quarter days to complete each orbit around the Sun, the ice giant Uranus takes 84 Earth years. And now's the time when it's in just the right position. So scientists use the radio antenna dishes of the Very Large Array in New Mexico to get some unprecedented views of Uranus as its northern pole came into view during its long orbit around the Sun. And by examining radio waves emitted by the ice giant, astronomers detected a polar vortex at the planet's north pole. The findings confirm a broad truth about all the planets with substantial atmospheres in our solar system. It seems whether the planets are composed mainly of rock or gas, their atmospheres all show signs of swirling vortices at the poles, except for Mercury, which has no substantial atmosphere. In truth, scientists have long known that Uranus's south pole also has such a feature. Back in January 1986, NASA's Voyager 2 spacecraft imaged methane clouds during its flyby of the planet, identifying winds at the south polar centre, which are spinning faster than over the rest of the pole. But Voyager 2's infrared measurements observed no temperature changes. And that's where these new measurements are different, because they do. Since around 2015, astronomers have been getting a better and better view of the Uranus North Pole. And as their view improves, they've been able to look deeper and deeper into the northern polar atmosphere. The study's lead author, Alex Atkins, from NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California, says the new observations tell scientists a lot about the story of Uranus. They show that it's a much more dynamic world than what one might have thought. It's not simply just a plain blue ball of gas. But unlike the typhoons, hurricanes and tropical cyclones of Earth, cyclones on Uranus aren't formed by water, nor do they drift around the place like they do on Earth. They're simply just locked in at the poles. Researchers will be watching closely in coming years to see how the newly discovered Uranus cyclone evolves. That's important because the National Academy's 2023 Planetary Science and Astrobiology Decadal Survey has prioritised Uranus for exploration. And in preparation for such a mission, planetary scientists are focused on bolstering their knowledge about the mysteries of the ice giant system. This report from NASA TV. First detected in 1781 by English astronomer Sir William Herschel, Uranus, in Greek mythology, is the name for the heavens. 
Like all the other planets, Uranus spins like a top, but tipped over on its side. Strangely tilted and off-center, Uranus's magnetic field extends in a bizarre corkscrew tail millions of miles into space. Its magnetic poles are also wildly askew. Voyager 2 discovered two new rings, dark, narrow, thin bands of ice, rock, and dust with particles the size of a fist. Although Voyager 2 discovered 10 new Uranian moons, the most eagerly anticipated event was the close encounter with Miranda, one of the most bizarre moons in our solar system. Close-ups of Miranda revealed a strange and wondrous landscape, including a canyon 12 miles deep. Miranda may have collided with another moon, shattered, and then by the force of its own gravity, slowly reassembled itself into this chunk of rock and ice, a silent testament to the violent origins of our solar system. This is Space Time. Still to come, Lightning's role in the creation of life on Earth and SpaceX's latest space tourism flight to the International Space Station. All that and more coming up on Space Time. A new study has shown that lightning's role in making nitrogen available for life on Earth may have been relatively short-lived. Although lightning has been invoked as a major source for bioavailable nitrogen for life on early Earth, the new findings reported in the journal Nature Geoscience show that our planet's biosphere quickly became independent from this nutrient source. Nitrogen is a key element for the origin and evolution of life as we know it. Like today, nitrogen in the atmosphere of the early Earth was mainly present in the form of unreachable nitrogen molecules, denying organisms easy access to this resource. Now, some microorganisms are capable of converting molecular nitrogen gas into bioavailable forms like ammonium. But before the emergence of this metabolism, energetic processes such as lightning must have been responsible for breaking apart these nitrogen molecules. To investigate how lightning can make nitrogen available for life, researchers conducted a series of spark discharge experiments. They filled glass flasks with water and different gas mixtures, resembling the atmospheres of both modern day and early Earth. And they then subjected these gas mixtures to an electric discharge of nearly 50,000 volts. After the experiments, the scientists measured the composition of the gas mixture in water and they detected increased concentrations of nitric acid, nitrite and nitrates. The study's lead author Patrick Bath from the University of St Andrews says the results clearly show that lightning can efficiently produce nitrogen oxides in a carbon dioxide-rich atmosphere, the sort of atmosphere that likely existed on the early Earth. This, therefore, provides a potential source for nutrients for life at that time. The results will also help with identifying a possible source for nitrate deposits on Mars and possibly other planets and moons in our solar system. This is Space Time. Still to come, it's been a busy couple of months for SpaceX. We'll check out what they've been up to. And later in the science report... A new study warns that 2 billion people, that's a quarter of the world's current population, will be exposed to dangerous heat conditions as a result of global warming. All that and more still to come on Space Time.
SpaceX has launched another space tourism flight, this one to the International Space Station. The Axiom 2 flight carried a rich Tennessee businessman who started his own racing car team, two wealthy Saudis, and an experienced former, now retired NASA astronaut, on a 10-day trip to the orbiting outpost aboard the Dragon Capsule Freedom. The mission aboard a Falcon 9 rocket from Pad 39A at the Kennedy Space Center in Florida launched 16 hours before docking to the International Space Station. FTS is armed, Falcon 9 is in startup and is now controlling. Dragon is in countdown. Dragon, SpaceX, go for launch. Dragon, copy, go for launch. T minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, Four, three, two, one. Engines full power. And lift off Falcon 9. Go Axiom. It's one alpha. <laughs> Copy, one alpha. Together we expand what two is possible in low Earth orbit. Add Astra and Godspeed Stage AX2. One, two. T plus 36, second, 36 seconds into flight. A great view of Falcon 9 heading to space. Power telemetry is nominal. Stage one throttle down. Power telemetry nominal. We're into the throttle bucket. Is the first stage is throttle down power on the Merlin engines in preparation for max Q. Falcon 9 is supersonic. Faster than the speed of sound. Stage one throttle up. Max Q. We're out of the throttle bucket. Stage one Bravo. Copy one Bravo. We're at full power and that call on one Bravo. That's another one of those abort modes. As we get higher and faster. The logic for Dragon, should a contingency occur, changes from stage to stage. Impact chill is underway. Chill announcement says we're getting the turbo pump on the second stage engine cooled down in preparation for its light up coming up in just another minute from now. They're getting ready. We're going to get three events here. Main engine cutoff, stage, stage separation, one and then we're going to light the second stage engine. We've heard the throttle down in preparation for stage separation. Eco. Two alpha. Stage separation. Copy, two alpha. And back ignition. Stage one, boost back startup. All right, stage separation. We've lit the second stage engine. The first stage is into the boost back burn, working its way back towards Cape Canaveral. That's the first stage. Engine's running as we come back to the launch site, or the landing site. We're powering the Axiom 2 crew into low Earth orbit on the way to the International Space Station. Waiting for call out that the boost back burn is complete. Stage one, boost back shutdown. Right on time. First stage completed the first of three burns, heading back to the landing site. Second stage continuing on power and on trajectory. Acquisition signal, Bermuda. Head northeast, the Bermuda ground station. Dragon, SpaceX, trajectory nominal. Bermuda is listening into the vehicle Copy. now. Nominal trajectory. And the crew hears the call out of a nominal trajectory. So four minutes into flight, everything continuing to go well. First stage heading back. The crew on the second stage getting the ride into orbit to the space station. Coming up, we're waiting for the next trajectory call out from the guidance officer. Dragon, SpaceX, trajectory nominal. Ah, love to hear those words. A nominal trajectory for Dragon. Copy. Nominal trajectory. And maybe even a little bit of excitement in the crew's voice. Commander Peggy Whitson calling back down, hearing that call out from GNC of a nominal trajectory. The first stage, it's now beginning to orient itself so that the engines are pointed down towards the land as we will be descending towards landing zone one in Cape Canaveral. The four titanium grid fins have all deployed. They'll help guide the... Signal. 
They'll guide the first stage through the, once we get into the atmosphere, following the entry burn, which will be coming up here in another couple of minutes. The second stage with the Dragon capsule on top, heading up the eastern seaboard of the U.S. We've just heard the call out of Boston. That's the New Hampshire tracking station has picked up the signal. Dragon SpaceX trajectory nominal. And see, continuing to make those call-outs that we want to hear. Everything trajectory continuing nominal. to look good. And the crew echoing them right back down. Stage one, entry burn, startup. And there we heard that the startup burn for that stage one booster has now begun. Stage one, entry burn, shutdown. And conclusion of that entry burn, that burn helps to uh, slow the vehicle down as it re-enters the Earth's atmosphere. The first, the first stage sees high drag, which scrubs roughly 70% of the velocity by the time Dragon that that landed. SpaceX, trajectory nominal. Love to hear that call out. Everything nominal trajectory. This booster is attempting a landing at LZ-1. Stage one, transonic. That booster is now traveling near the speed of sound. Grid fins actuating to help steer the booster down. Stage one, landing burn. Stage two, FTS has saved. Standing by to... Stage one, landing leg deploy. There you Stage can... one, landing confirmed. First stage has landed back at LZ-1. This is the first time that we have performed a land landing on a crew mission. Coming up next will be second engine cutoff, or SECO, and that's where after, after that engine cuts off, second stage will coast for a few minutes until Dragon is commanded to separate. Stage two is in terminal guidance. We're expecting SECO to occur terminal in about guidance. 20 seconds. Shannon. Copy, Shannon. Commander Peggy Woodson continuing to call out the abort modes. All right, on time shutdown of that second engine. Also confirming that the launch escape system is now disarmed. Dragon SpaceX, nominal orbit insertion. All right, and there's that call out. We can confirm good orbital insertion. Copy, nominal insertion. Dragon SpaceX, launch escape system disarmed. The next event that we have coming up is Dragon separation. That's where the Dragon spacecraft and trunk so collectively referred to as the Dragon spacecraft, will separate from the second stage. Acquisition signal event. After that separation, we will begin to deploy the nose cone, which exposes the forward bulkhead thrusters as well as the forward hatch. That forward hatch is what the capsule utilizes to autonomously dock to the International Space Station. We have mission specialist Rayana Barnawi to the right of her is pilot John Schaffner. Then we have Commander Peggy Whitson. And on the far right, mission specialist Ali Alkarni. Now we are standing by for dragon separation. Dragon separation. And wow. there you can see that dragon, dragon. trunk and capsule. Dragon Shaffner. SpaceX launch director. Very great flight. Uh, wish you safe travels. A few words from our chief engineer as well. Thanks for putting your trust in the Falcon 9 team. Hope you enjoyed the ride to space. Have a great trip on Dragon. Welcome home to Zero G. Tickets for the flight are rumored to have set each of the tourists back around $80 million. But that does include meals. It's the second charter flight organized by the Houston-based Axiom Group, which plans to eventually build its own private space station for wealthy tourists. We are building the world's first commercial space station, one element at a time. 
We think that what we're doing is for everyone everywhere. This is a global endeavor. Our partner, Talisalani in Italy, is in the finishing stages of uh, building the first module, the first pressure vessel. We are here in the integration and manufacturing area of uh, Talisalani space. Here we have the, uh, the two cons that uh, will, uh, will be part of the module. Uh, is also uh, the gate to the module to come in and to come out. The very big cylinder that uh, will be the core of the module. On these ports, all the additional modules will be docked. This is uh, the most complex piece of the entire Axiom uh, module. We're on pace to build a human-rated spaceship faster than anybody has ever built one. When we look at our roadmap, we look to see how we can double its capability every five years. It requires a lot of different talents and a lot of different engineering backgrounds, so we've really expanded the team. I'm working on the time-sensitive network aspect of the space station. So that's the network have all the flight computers synchronized and actually do the thruster firing at the perfect time. So this is the command trailer. We're able to control our test stand, which enables us to vary our set pressures, our flow rates into the thruster in order to uh, collect performance data at various OFs and uh, chamber pressure conditions. It's always a blast to come out here, set everything up, and start lighting rockets off. We have the carbon dioxide removal subassembly. We're going to be creating the most uh, integrated ecosystem that has ever been put into space thus far, which is a really cool thing to be able to say. I fabricate PC boards and cables and harnessing. This is a life-critical job, and you want to make sure you do the best possible job. Fifteen to twenty years from now, we're going to be surrounded by objects that we can't imagine how we live without that were manufactured in space. I think there's another promise too, and that's why I'm really excited about the X2 crew. There is this effect that people have gone to space and had. This is called the overview effect. Many people have come back profoundly changed because of their experience. And I think the more people that we can have that see the world as the whole world, the better off we all are. The flight was the culmination of what's been an incredibly busy couple of months for SpaceX. It launches more rockets into space than any other operator. Back in mid-March, the Hawthorne, California-based company launched its 27th commercial resupply mission for NASA to the International Space Station. The CRS-27 mission was also launched from Pad 39A aboard a Falcon 9 rocket. Its Dragon cargo capsule carried some 2,858 kilograms of food and supplies to the orbiting outpost. Included in the manifest were more of those tissue-chip biomedical experiments focusing on human heart research. There was a new camera image tracking stabilization project designed by high school students, an experiment replacing gravity with capillary forces to control liquids that can absorb carbon dioxide, tests looking at the antimicrobial properties of different materials in space to help fight bacterial contamination, 
and a study examining how radiation-resistant microbes, as well as moss spores and biochemical compounds, including amino acids, respond to space exposure. Just two days before that mission launched, NASA's SpaceX Crew-5 returned to Earth after their five-month stay aboard the International Space Station. Their Crew Dragon capsule splashed down in the Gulf of Mexico, just off the West Florida coast. We're coming up to the deorbit burn. Now again, this is going to be an 11-minute burn, approximately. We've got to slow the astronauts down uh, from orbital velocity at 17,500 miles per hour and put them on that track to Tampa, Florida, and that splashdown. Some of the thrusters are firing, so deorbit burn is underway. Again, started right on time at 5.11 p.m. Pacific, targeting about 11 minutes for that burn. Within just the last 10 minutes, Dragon jettisoned its trunk. It initiated that deorbit burn about two minutes ago now. So for these operations, NASA and SpaceX closely coordinate with the uh, United States Coast Guard. And before we go any further, let's go ahead and take a minute to meet our crew. First up is Nicole Mann. She's the California native who holds a Master of Science in Mechanical Engineering and is a colonel in the Marine Corps. She was an FA-18 Hornet and Super Hornet test pilot and deployed twice aboard aircraft carriers in support of combat operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. Nicole was selected by NASA in June 2013 and in the years that followed, led the astronaut corps in the development of hardware in the Artemis program. She is the Dragon Commander for Crew-5 which was her first space flight, and she is also the first Native American woman to stay on the International Space Station. Sitting next to Nicole is Josh Cassida, who grew up in Bear Lake, Minnesota. The physicist and U.S. Navy test pilot flew 23 combat missions and later became an instructor at the U.S. Naval Test Pilot School, which is a common path military officers take to join NASA. Cassida is one of more than 100 graduates who became astronauts going back to the Mercury program. On Earth, he served as capsule commander in mission control, but for his first space flight on Crew-5, he has served as pilot on Dragon. In the role of mission specialist, that's Japanese astronaut Koichi Wakata. Koichi has a doctorate in aerospace engineering and in 1996 became the first Japanese mission specialist aboard the space shuttle Endeavour for STS-72. In addition to his current mission, Koichi flew four space shuttle missions, a Roscosmos Soyuz, and was on a long-duration stay aboard the International Space Station. And just on March 6th, Koichi reached his five 500th day in space. Wow, that's pretty incredible. <laughs> the second mission specialist is Roscosmos cosmonaut Anna Anna Kikina. She graduated from the Novosibirsk State Academy of Water Transport in 2006. In 2012, Anna officially became a candidate for the position of test cosmonaut. Crew 5 was Anna's first flight into space as part of the resumption of integrated crews on U.S. crew spacecraft and the Soyuz with the Russian State Space Corporation Roscosmos. Now we are still in that deorbit burn. All of those uh, four Draco engines firing for the last time before closing that nose cone and preparing the capsule for reentry. Deorbit burn complete. Performance nominal. Nose cone closure initiated. Dragon copy. Coming up next uh, will be our anticipated loss of signal around 5:48 p.m. Pacific time. Uh, the crew just got an update on that from CORE here in Hawthorne uh, before we started the broadcast. So again, when we're in that entry period and plasma is building up around the spacecraft, uh, it makes it hard for us to communicate uh, back and forth. So during that time, we won't have communication with the astronauts uh, or the spacecraft itself. However, again, Dragon is fully autonomous and continues guiding those crew members uh, to our splashdown site in Tampa. When the capsule is on station and when it departs the space station, it's going 17,000 
500 miles per hour or thereabout. Yes. It's going really, really fast. Um, and then we do that uh, deorbit burn, which helps to slow the vehicle down significantly. But at that point in time, it's still going, uh, I want to say it's about 500 miles per hour as it reenters the atmosphere. That heat shield is actually going to do a lot of work that gets converted into the form of heat, that plasma that builds up, and actually slows it down. So the Earth's atmosphere is actually going to help us out in slowing the vehicle down even further as it re-enters the Earth's atmosphere. And then we have those two sets of parachutes. Dragon, SpaceX for entry briefing. Go for Dragon. Okay, just to give you a quick update here for timeline, the weather is still looking good and we're uh, looking forward to getting you home shortly. Expected blackout time is in approximately two minutes or so. We'll see you on the other side at 0156 Zulu. Copy, see you on the other side. Now, after Crew Dragon Endurance has re-entered the Earth's atmosphere, a series of parachutes will deploy to slow the crew's descent. Uh, first will be the two drogue parachutes, followed by the four main chutes to guide Dragon to its first contact with Earth since it launched. Dragon will automatically deploy those parachutes when different pressure and positioning sensors uh, on the capsule detect that they are at the right speed and altitude. And we were just talking about these speeds. So the velocity at the drogue deploy point, uh, we've slowed down to 350 miles per hour. Those deploy at about 18,000 feet. That is quite different from the 17,500 miles per hour we were just traveling before the deorbit burn. Yeah. Um, and then the velocity at the time of main parachute deploy is about 119 miles per hour. Those will deploy at about 6,500 feet. And then that gentle water splashdown, we will be traveling at about 16 miles per hour. So Again, that highest G load we think is around three to five Gs. So they should be pretty comfortable. We are in that communications blackout period. It's just begun. That's right. Um, we're expecting that to last seven minutes due to the formation of plasma around the spacecraft. During that time, no vehicle telemetry is received by mission control or the recovery team, and no external commanding of the vehicle or voice communication is possible. The top temperature that Dragon will experience upon that reentry, um, in terms of the exterior temperature, is around 3,500 degrees Fahrenheit. Dragon, SpaceX, comm check. As I mentioned, the SpaceX core. SpaceX Dragon, we have you loud and clear. We have you the same. Good to have you back. Expect automated shoot deployment. Dragon copy. Crew Dragon Endurance coming home after 157 days in space. We are standing by for drogue parachute deployment. GPS has converged. Expect nominal altitude for drogue shoot deploy. Dragon Endurance is about to deploy the drogue parachutes. Um, those automatically deploy about around the 18,000 foot mark, and the capsule's going about 350 miles per hour. Brace for drogue window. Dragon brace. Visual on two healthy drogues. Dragon copy. Those will uh, remain attached to the spacecraft until they help deploy the main parachutes. Main chute descent rate nominal. Dragon copies, 1,000 meters. Beautiful. Copy, 1,000. Dragon Endurance with those four healthy main parachutes. At this point in time, the capsule's going about 119, or was going about 119 miles per hour when those were deployed, uh, and they also deployed about 6,500 feet. So these main parachutes will help slow the vehicle down even further to about- 800 meters. 
Copy, 800. Flashing down. Copy, 400 meters. Once again, we are targeting a splashdown off the uh, coast of Florida uh, near Tampa. This is uh, what we would consider a gulf landing. Dragon endurance. 200 meters, crew brace for splashdown. Copy, 200 and braced. Commander Nicole Mann giving out that call as we are standing by for splashdown off the coast of Tampa, Florida. Dragon Endurance coming closer and closer and a splashdown of Crew 5. 157 days in space. SpaceX Dragon splashdown mains have been released. Copy Dragon, we concur with splashdown and mains released. Dragon Endurance on behalf of SpaceX, welcome home. Crew 5 had launched from Cape Canaveral back in October last year. Their return to Earth saw the jettisoned trunk section of their Dragon capsule make a spectacular atmospheric re-entry, lighting up the skies over the western United States. Reports of the fireball came in from Arizona, Colorado, New Mexico and Texas. The trunk section provides external storage and also provides the service module equipment for the Dragon during its mission. It's jettisoned during the re-entry phase of flight, exposing the Dragon capsule's heat shield. Meanwhile, just a couple of days after the Axiom-2 flight, SpaceX successfully launched another 56 Starlink satellites aboard a Falcon 9 rocket, Space Launch Complex 40, at the Cape Canaveral Space Force Base in Florida. The Starlink 59 mission brings the current Starlink broadband internet constellation to some 4,447 satellites. And it won't end there. The company has permission to deploy up to 12,000 Starlinks, and they're still seeking permission to launch an additional 30,000. It is going to get crowded up there. The mission also marked the 191st successful landing of a Falcon 9 booster, which touched down successfully aboard the drone ship just read the instructions about eight minutes after launch. The drone had been pre-positioned downrange in the North Atlantic Ocean. Now, this flight took place just four days after SpaceX launched another 51 Starlink satellites aboard a Falcon 9 rocket from the other side of the country on Pad 4E at the Vandenberg Space Force Base in California. That booster stage also returned safely to Earth, landing on the drone ship Of Course I Still Love You, which had been pre-positioned downrange in the North Pacific Ocean. Meanwhile, after severe weather and technical delays, SpaceX finally managed to launch their Falcon Heavy rocket. It carried the Viasat-3 Americas satellite, together with two smaller communication satellites, Arcturus and GS-1. The flight from Space Launch Complex 39A at the Kennedy Space Center successfully placed the trio of satellites into geostationary orbits 36,000 kilometers above the Earth. The 6,000-kilogram Boeing-built Viasat-3 Americas satellite is the first of three new-generation broadband satellites using the 702 platform. The 300-kilogram secondary Arcturus payload was Australia Space Technologies' first commercial satellite. It'll deliver data at rates of up to 7.5 gigabytes per second for Alaska and surrounding areas. The third satellite was Gravity Space's GS-1 CubeSat. It carried several payloads, including the Indonesian Nusantara H1A, which features KU, KA and VQ frequency bands as well as an Infinite Orbit's autonomous navigation system, which uses computer vision capabilities driven by machine learning-based estimation techniques to track resident space objects. This was also the first launch in which SpaceX intentionally expended all three of its first-stage boosters from the Falcon Heavy rocket. The Falcon Heavy is made up of three first-stage boosters strapped side-by-side, acting as a single-core stage. 
And just two days before that launch, another Falcon 9 carried the O3BM Power 3 and 4 communication satellites into orbit from the adjacent Pad 40 at Cape Canaveral. And the Falcon 9's first stage booster from that mission also landed safely aboard a drone ship after the launch. They say space is hard, but you got to admit, SpaceX really do make it all seem easy. This is Space Time. And time now to take another brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with the Science Report. A new study warns that around 2 billion people, that's a quarter of the world's population, will be exposed to dangerous heat conditions if we remain on our current path towards 2.7 degrees Celsius of global warming. The findings, reported in the journal Nature, outlines the human cost of climate inaction. The study shows that the narrow Goldilocks range of the Earth's climate, where it's not too hot and not too cold for humans to live, called the climate niche, is rapidly shrinking. The researchers say Australia in particular has been highlighted as a country which would experience massive increases in land area exposed to extreme heat if temperatures do rise by 2.7 degrees Celsius. A new ultra-thin nanotechnology skin patch capable of monitoring 11 different human health signals has been developed by scientists at Melbourne's Monash University. Using specialised algorithms, personalised artificial intelligence technology can now disentangle multiple body signals, understand them and make a decision on what to do next. The research, reported in the journal Nature, could change how remote healthcare is delivered and it could be the future for personal alarms and communication devices. Worn on the neck, the ultra-thin wearable patch has three layers, measuring speech, neck movement and touch. It also measures breathing and heart rates. The Monash team developed a frequency amplitude-based neural network called Deep Hybrid Spectro that can automatically monitor multiple biometrics from a single signal. The sensor is composed of laminated cracked platinum film, vertically aligned gold nanowires, and a percolated gold nanowire film. Contrary to what you may have heard elsewhere, it seems neck skin is the most sensitive skin on the human body and connects up to five physiological activities associated with the human throat, speech, heartbeats, breathing, touch, and neck movements. Well, it could now be time for scientists to take a closer look at unidentified aerial phenomena. You know, the stuff we used to call UFOs. The call is based on a survey of 1,460 American academics. In fact, 19% of respondents to the survey report that either they or someone they know had witnessed an unidentified aerial phenomena, observations of the sky that cannot be identified as an aircraft or no natural phenomena. And another 37% of scientists reported some degree of interest into conducting the research into unidentified aerial phenomena. The survey, reported in the journal Humanities and Social Science Communications, included political scientists, physicists, psychologists and engineers. It highlights that many academics consider the evaluation of unidentified aerial phenomena to be truly worthy of academic scrutiny and not some fringe activity. Aces released its latest lineup of OLED laptops, including its new glassless 3D screens. 
With the details, we're joined by technology editor Alex Harov-Royt from techadvice.life. Well, Asus have launched a whole stack of new laptops, 24 of them actually in the current ah. 2023 lineup. And what differentiates these from the laptops of the past is that they all have OLED screens. Now, there's still a couple of laptops in the range that uh, are priced sort of under $1,000 that don't have OLED, but the cheapest one is 1399 Australian with an OLED screen. So OLED used to be quite expensive because the screen quality is really uh, special. It's got deep blacks and uh, it's just a, a much more vibrant than your traditional LCD or LED traditional screen. So with OLED, Asus buy so many of these screens that they've been able to push the prices down and they're now the number one OLED laptop maker. And their Vivo book range, which is sort of their entry-level sort of range, that's got all OLED displays. They've got a, a sort of a, a range in the middle, the ZenBook, including the ZenBook Duo, which is the model that comes in 14 and I think 16-inch sizes. It's got a main screen and a secondary screen above the keyboard. And both of those are now OLED and touch. And the one on the keyboard side is matte, so it's not reflecting things. And it raises automatically when you open up the laptop for extra airflow. Uh, and there's also a ZenBook uh, S13 OLED, world's thinnest OLED laptop. It's about a centimeter in thick or thinness. It's about one kilo and it's got a beautiful OLED screen. And Asus also has their Pro Studio devices with a built-in jog wheel, which is physically able to spin. It's designed for use in video editing or audio editing. But they had in Australia their 3D OLED display that gives you 3D without glasses. Now, this isn't being launched in Australia this year. It is launched overseas, so people who really want one can get one. I don't know the price, but I know that the top of the line Pro Studio was something like 10 grand last time I saw it because it really is top of the line. And uh, the effect really was uh, seeing something floating in front of your face. And at the top of the screen, it had two cameras pointing out at the top, sort of just subtly to look at you because it's looking at your eyes to make sure that it is um, displaying the the stereoscopic you know, images. The screen, yeah. That's right. If you look from the side, you end up seeing a sort of a double image. And I tried to film it, but of course, it requires two Why eyes, one camera's one not enough. Well, I didn't try that, but I know that when, when you look at it from the wrong angle, you actually see a doubling of the image because yeah, it's you it's showing you two images. Yeah. So if you close one eye, you probably you won't see 3D because you need two eyes to yeah, do it. So that I was... See. A really nice new range, and Asus has made a, a big song and dance about how their machines, they now have these brightest and most colorful-looking screens, and the design of them stands out. They've got differently colored keyboards and chassis and uh, using a lot of recycled materials, and they definitely look more stylish than your traditional HP or Dell laptop. I mean, those guys have obviously tried to you know, sexy up their devices as well. But certainly when you go into a store and you see all these different brands, Asus really wants to catch your eye and hopefully catch your wallet as well. That's Alex Harov-Royt from TechAdvice.life. That's the show for now. Spacetime is available every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday through Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcast, Pocket Casts, Spotify, Acast, Amazon Music, Bytes.com, SoundCloud, YouTube, your favorite podcast download provider, and from SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com. Spacetime's also broadcast through the National Science Foundation on Science Zone Radio and on both iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio. And you can help to support our show by visiting the Spacetime store for a range of promotional merchandising goodies. 
or by becoming a Spacetime patron, which gives you access to triple episode commercial-free versions of the show, as well as lots of bonus audio content which doesn't go to air, access to our exclusive Facebook group, and other rewards. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.com for full details. And if you want more Space Time, please check out our blog, where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as heaps of images, news stories, loads of videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at Stuart Gary on Twitter, at Spacetime with Stuart Gary on Instagram, through our Spacetime YouTube channel, and on Facebook, just go to facebook.com forward slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. And Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Space Time with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 